It says that John writes his gospel so that, in quote, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's chapter 20, verse 31. This life is the word zoe in Greek, Z-O-E. It differs from bios, biological life. Zoe is God's life, the kind of life that lives forever. It never decays. Though originally assumed to be something limited to heaven, John dares us to find Zoe in Jesus today. This is the life God wants us to live right now. A piece of himself within us. A bit of heaven on earth before Jesus returns to the earth. Eternal life is not merely life after death, but also life before death. And that is what we get to see when John uses the word life in his gospel. It is the word Zoe. And that is God's life that lives on forever. And so, because of this life that was originated in Eden with Adam and Eve and God and was lost in the fall, if this life is returning to humanity and to the earth in Jesus, then it wouldn't surprise us to see John open his gospel with the words of Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word and that's where he departs and says this is the new creation this is the new genesis in the ministry of jesus when god touches down on earth in human flesh we have the new creation being launched and so he rather intelligently that's not the right word but creatively i guess uh insightfully gives us seven miracles that jesus performs as if these are the seven creation days as it moves along in the gospel of john and he calls them signs. Those are specific miracles that are meant to be aiming for something. A sign points somewhere. And so these seven signs, out of all the ones Jesus did, John chooses to write down seven so that these are pointing to that new creation where Zoe life is abundant and that Jesus is bringing us to. Then, just to put a cherry on top, he has Jesus use the personal name of God, Yahweh, translated, I am that I am. Seven times Jesus says, I am. And then he gives a significant thing that he is to people who believe in him. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, truth, and life. I am the vine, or the true vine. So we see that seven times. And as we're, we're left without a doubt that Jesus is coming to bring a new creation. I don't want to spoil what happens at the end of John, but it totally caps off this enti entire idea of the new creation coming. So read ahead and try to see what I'm talking about if you want. I dare you. Uh, so... Now, what happens is John is, he's writing in two parts. So part one, he's writing about the signs. And it's been called for a long time, the book of signs. Chapters one through 12. You see all seven of his signs, his miracles happening there. We're past that. We're now in book two or part two, in which it's called the, the book of glory. And this is now where everything slows down. We're now, uh, mostly it's a 24-hour day, then a weekend added to that. Time slows very much down. Where part one was the three years of Jesus' ministry, part two is just the three days of his death and resurrection. 
In part one, he's talking to the world and everybody who will hear him. In part two, he's turning his attention to his disciples, and then he goes to the cross. In part one, he's emphasizing the word Zoe, the word life, and saying, this is what I'm inviting the world into to follow me into the new creation. In part two, he shifts the terminology to glory and to love. And so we see a very personal and intimate Jesus as we get to part two, as he's on coming closer to his death. So where we are presently tonight, um, chapter 17 ends his lengthy farewell sermon. So it starts at the table, the Passover uh, meal, or at least a Passover-like meal with his disciples, and he washes their feet. Then he launches into telling them about things that are going to happen. This is what you need to know to be my disciples when I'm absent. I'm going to come to you in the spirit, sure, but while I'm gone, my farewell discourse is to teach you how to fare well in my absence. So that is what that um, is about. So he now comes in chapter 17 to the end of this farewell. He's going to end it here in chapter 17. And he's going to end it with a prayer. So as we enter chapter 17, the dialogue ends. Jesus was teaching his disciples and they kept asking some idiotic questions and some very insightful questions. Depend on who was asking, right, Peter? Uh, So they were asking a lot of questions, and then Jesus would be answering and teaching them uh, in this farewell discourse. Now, in chapter 17, still at the table, they are silent. Jesus has the stage now. He is praying out loud in front of them, for them, for us. This prayer is going to divide into three parts. I'm going to read it just straight through so we can hear the one prayer. So I'm going to give you the outline right now. Three parts. The first five verses, Jesus is praying about his relationship with the Father. His relationship with the Father. How Jesus wants uh, his glory and the Father's glory to be displayed. And Jesus wants to be faithful to his Father's glory. So do his Father says. So his relationship with the Father. The second part of his prayer is verses 6 to 19. And that's where we're going to see the disciples. The 11 right there. Judas has already left. So we're down to 11. The disciples' relationship to the Father. So those 11, he's going to pray specifically for them. That they will be kept in the Christ-centered truth that they have learned from him. He prays for their protection. Then third, verses 20 to 26, or the rest of the chapter, we look at the church, the church's relationship to the Father. So Jesus is concerned with his relationship with the Father, prays for that. He's concerned with the disciples' relationship with the Father, he prays for that. Then he's looking forward to the followers of the followers, us, who will be established, and he prays for us. So this gets very real for us. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, prayed for you. And that's actually only half true because he's still praying for you. So this is the beginning of it, and this is a great chapter for us to look at. One more insight, and I will let you look at it as we read it, uh, is that some authors have discovered uh, close similarities with the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we for, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That six-fold petition, uh, some authors have found those six petitions in this prayer. So in a way, Jesus is praying the Lord's Prayer, 
or the Our Father, and he's expounding on those lines as is a good thing to do when we pray. We, we use the Lord's Prayer not to just recite, but to expound on each line, hallowed be thy name. So let's glorify the name of God. Let's pray for his you know, exaltation, and how can we make sure that we're living lives that are exalting him? Lord, search me and know me. See if I'm living for my own glory, right? That's how we can pray the Lord's Prayer. And so these uh, authors have seen that Jesus is doing this himself. Um, it's interesting. It's however you, I'll let you be the judge as we read through it. You might pick up some similarities, but it doesn't look like Jesus is going line by line through that prayer. By the way, footnote, we call that the Lord's prayer, Matthew six. This is, I guess, technically the Lord's prayer. So one commentator called it the Lord's Lord's prayer. So here we have Jesus and his prayer. Well, let's get into it. First one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal Zoe to all whom you have given him. And this eternal Zoe that they know, this is eternal Zoe, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you have given me, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas, Iscariot, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word has, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world as you sent me into the world. So I have sent them into the world and for their sake, I consecrate myself 
that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. They may, uh, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So, Jesus prays about his relationship with the Father. We see him using the word glory. We refer to sunsets as glorious. Uh, we talk about people basking in their glory or the glory of something. So, uh, the idea of glory is essentially this, that it, it deals with something that's either beautiful or praiseworthy, which obviously goes hand in hand because that which is beautiful is praiseworthy. But so glory often is something that you can give to somebody as praise, as admonition, as validation to say, wow, you're amazing, you're special, you're wonderful. We attempt to give glory to God as we are singing songs to him and as we're reading his word, we're, just, we're in awe of what he is and what he's done. We give glory, we give praise. But glory is also something that's beautiful. You talk about something that's glorious. God is glorious because of the magnificent power and beauty and praise that he inherently possesses that we see. But the thing is, is that glory in this old creation that's wearing away has been veiled to a degree because of the fall and because of sin. So when we talk about glorifying something, or we say, show them the glory, what we're talking about is unveiling that which has masked the original beauty and praise of something. So that's what we want to do when we glorify God. It's not that God can actually be more glorified than he already is, as if he's some small little being, and the more praise we give him, the bigger he grows, like a, one of those growing mushroom things or something. Um, it's not like that. It's more that because the world has been veiled, blinded to the beauty and praise of God, as we glorify him, we're actually just removing the veil so that people see what's already there more clearly. And so Jesus is asking that the Father would glorify him so that he can glorify the Father. It's going to be amazing when we see the actual potential of this world that has been masked, the true glory of God's creation when he returns. That's why we say his returns going to be glorious. Because we're going to see everything, man, woman, creation, 
kingdoms, everything the way it was meant to be. That is glory. And that will be praised. And that will be beautiful and splendiferous. I might have made that word up. So he then in verse 6 down to 19 prays for his disciples. And um, you'll notice in 14, he begins talking about the world. In 14, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so the concept has become quite popular due to that Christian brand, not of this world or N-O-T-W. You might see in bumper stickers or shirts. So that's obviously grabbing that concept. Um, I I do feel, I don't know, this is just where all of us hear language differently sometimes, so it may not apply to you. But for me, I feel that the language of the English Standard Version and the New King James Version is a little bit misleading, at least for me and my upbringing. When he says that, uh, you know, they are not of the world, I am not of the world, I always just walked away with the idea that the entire world is just... It's just going to hell, and uh, we have no business here. In fact, we're just kind of quietly waiting our time to go uh, to get out of this wretched place. And though, of course, we believe in heaven, um, I've begun to realize that it's actually, when the Bible talks about the world, it's not condemning the planet. It's not condemning creation. It's not even condemning people. Think about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't hate the world. The world there talks about people. He didn't hate the people. He loved the people. He loved the world. So though I know the letter of John, 1 John's going to tell us later, and when Mike's going to get to that in a few weeks, uh, that we're to hate the world. But we have to understand what it's talking about there. Is that it's not talking about the planet, the solar system, uh, trees and um, technology and music. Like, we're not supposed to hate that. Uh, that. You could think of that as one instance that the world can mean is the creation. We're actually to love and cherish God's creation. The very stuff that he made with his own hands and that he said was very good when he was done with. We're to enjoy that. We're to call it very good. We're to immerse ourselves in it. We're thankful that we have musicians, right? Who have done such. They immerse themselves in the created aspect of music. We have books, we have movies, we have uh, photography, we have doctors, we have educators, we have science, we have all of these sports, whatever. We have food, food. We have all these things that are part of the creation. And if it wasn't for people that actually enjoyed and loved the world in that aspect, we would be eating pine needles and acorns all our lives. It's because of people's love for God's world that we have created good lives for ourselves and have enjoyed aspects of it. And that glorifies God. So what the Bible means when it says, do not love the world or you're not of the world, it's actually talking about the mentality and the system that lurks behind the creation, the fallen creation. Jesus prayed a little bit after this, uh, keep them from the evil one. That there's a mentality that says, look at the world of God, now use it for your own means. Abuse it. And make sure it's all aiming to make you the great and glorious God and that you've always wanted to be. That's the world. 
The world is what teaches us how to use God's world in a very selfish way. The disciples are not of the world in that sense. Jesus is not of the world. And so I I pulled out other translations, which I thought brilliantly helped us understand our relationship to the world a little bit better. Uh, Again, King James and ESV say uh, they are not of the world, uh, but there's... Uh, one translation says they are not products of the world. So you're talking about the, the school that says be selfish and use everything for yourself. They're not products of that school. Um, the, another translation, they did not join the world's ways. Or a commentator suggested their lives are not rooted in the world. That's a good one. Our lives are rooted in the Zoe life of God. While we're in the midst of this planet and trying to bring the blessings of God to it. So that is my attempt to help you see maybe a little clarification there. Lest we, lest we develop a very dichotomized worldview where we just draw this line and say, well, that's physical. So that's bad. This is created stuff. So I don't care about it. It's all going to burn. We're not called to live that way yet. We're not called to live that way yet. Which, by the way, was Gnostic thinking, which was a heresy that the early church endlessly battled against. And we don't want to slip back into that. We have to celebrate the creation and the world of God, lest we become very useless to the people in this world. So that's why a little bit later, Jesus will say in verse, right after, in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. See, the world's not the problem. It's the one behind it, teaching everyone to use everything for themselves. That's the problem. Okay. So now he prays for us, the future church, in verse 20. And um, we'll, we'll bring some stuff up in this. Uh, when I come back up. So let's go to chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. This is the Garden of Gethsemane on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. So if you're in the temple and you're at the very opening of the temple and you have the temple to your back, you're looking out the temple's on the eastern edge of the city. So all there is is a drop-off into the Valley Kidron, and then it goes up to another mound. It's only, I mean, you could probably hit it with a rock, the Mount of Olives right across from you. And the Garden of Gethsemane is there. So Jesus and his disciples exit the city, not very far. They go into this garden. Now Judas, in verse 2, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, our betrayer, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. They were ready for a big showdown. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again. Okay, so you can imagine them just, I am, and they all fall down. Judas, probably still standing because he wasn't 
surprised by that. Sticks out like a sore thumb, the traitor that he is. The rest of the soldiers with all their weapons are scattered, like, you know, struggling to get back up. Like, what just happened? And then she's like, let's try this again. Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. Uh, And so he says in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he'd spoken just in our previous chapter of his prayer. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So he protected them. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. You might remember that in chapter 11. Now, uh, ironic here. We just finished this prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 which many people have called his high priestly prayer because he's praying for his people before the father. He's the priest mediating between us and him. And so he's enacting the role of high priest. Then the very next chapter, we're coming face to face with the actual flesh and blood high priest, like the one given the title, the worldly title, high priest. And we come to them and we realize, oh, wait a minute. So Annas is father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And what you, what you may not know is that when Rome came to Jerusalem, they didn't want the Israelite way of having uh, the high priest be... Uh, Inherited by birth, which it was supposed to be, all the sons of Levi, I'm uh, Aaron, all the sons of Aaron becoming the high priest, you know, in succession. Uh, they wanted to do away with that. Why? Well, if you're a foreign power ruling an angry people, you want to control them, especially where they have the most power in their religion. So Rome started to appoint the high priest. How did they appoint the high priest? Whoever paid them top dollar. So you see that the high priest position was very corrupt by this time. And so here we have uh, them coming to Annas, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Some people believe Annas was the high priest before Caiaphas and this whole system of like changing high priest. Caiaphas was priest this year. We don't know about next year. You see what's going on? We see how futile and flimsy and temporary the human priesthood is. But Jesus is going to be our eternal high priest who continually prays over us. Anyways, the powerless Caiaphas. Simon Peter, verse 15, followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Uh, He explains to us that this other disciple, whom people think is John, knew the high priest. So he was able to get inside, was able to bring Peter in close to what's going on. But you'll notice in the end of verse 16, it says, So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are one of this man's disciples, aren't you? And Peter said, I am not. Now the servants and officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also went with them standing and warming himself. 
The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Simon was standing and warming himself. So they, around the fire, said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. Raises his head a little higher. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? I don't think I'd forget the person that cut off my relative's ear. And Peter again denied it and said, At once, and at once, the rooster crowed. So there Peter is put to shame and humiliated because he, remember in chapter 13, said, I will never deny you. I would like to die for you. And then Jesus says, oh, will you really? Well, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And so now Peter realizes. So in verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. In other words, it's not a very nice hour of the night. So they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they could not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So in short, Pilate, Pontius Pilate is the governor over Judea. He's a Roman ruling this area on behalf of Caesar over in Rome. Okay, so he's a Gentile. He's unclean. That's why they don't want to go into his house because they want to eat the Passover and not be defiled. It's really early in the morning. He's being pulled out of bed by the servants saying there are people at your door who some Jews complaining about something. Oh, my gosh, not another Jewish problem. He Pilate did not like the Jews. He was not friendly to them. One of the first things he did was he marched into the temple and put Roman pagan symbols all over the temple. That almost started a riot. So much so that he had to stand down to the people. Caesar writes him a letter, chewing him out, saying, how dare you? Are you an idiot? Like, what do you, you don't even know what you're, are you competent for your position? And Pilate wants to succeed. So, of course, he, like, quickly learned what he's supposed to do. Another time he hid uh, his soldiers in the garb of Jewish pilgrims and had them slaughter the Jews when they started complaining about something he did. Very brutal, mean guy. Played very dirty with them. So I'm going to read very uh, some hostility between them here, which a lot of commentators agree is probably going on. Anyways, it's early in the morning. I'd be hostile, whoever it was. So it was early in the morning. They did not enter. So 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, Well, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, because the Romans took that right away from them. So this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate, in verse 33, entered the headquarters again. And called Jesus and said to him, you can imagine him, you know, pulling on his night robe a little tighter. It's a little chilly. 
(laughs) He says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you do have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber, which is a very nice translation of a very violent insurrectionist. He joined in some revolution at some point. So he's a violent man. Uh, Wow. Okay. I just want to point out, we've gone through the trial, of course, in the three other Gospels. I just want to point out that... Peter here draws his sword to defend Jesus. It's very clear that the disciples still weren't sure what Jesus was about. They think him a king who's going to lead the Jews into their independent kingdom, like King David and Solomon of old. And so some people even believe that Judas betrayed Jesus because he was looking for the same thing and thought that if he brought soldiers against Jesus, it would incite the rebellion they'd been waiting for. A controversial theory, but nonetheless, it could be. So that when Judas brings the soldiers, they come, Peter draws a sword, they're like ready. They're thinking, this is it. This is time. All the followers are going to rise up and we're going to take this thing. Uh, But Jesus has to rebuke them and say, you still don't understand. Like, no, I'm, I'm going to the cross. That's why I'm here. And so then we come to the climax in many ways, maybe of John's whole gospel, I, I would actually argue it's in chapter 20, but other people say that this is the climax when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. Here you have God's son, Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, and truly the king of the whole world, standing face to face with Pilate, the ruler on behalf of Caesar, who is the entitled king of the whole world, right? So you have two kings who see themselves, at least Pilate's a representative of the king, who see themselves as kings of all of the world, Yet they have two very different ideas of what a kingdom is and how to make and keep a kingdom. Pontius Pilate is about to enact Caesar's favorite card to enact his uh, keeping his kingdom in just a moment. He's going to send Jesus to the cross. That's how Pilate built. Um, that's how Caesar built and kept his kingdom. Kill people, kill my op- oppressors and my oppos- opposition, and march my armies. And if there's any rebellion, squash it. But Jesus is going to stand there and say, bring it on. My kingdom is going to be built by sacrifice and by love. And I am going to actually defeat the evil of your kingdom by letting you do your worst so that I can rise from the dead and say, your worst had nothing on me. Your kingdom's defeated. 
my kingdom is going to reign forever and ever because it cannot die. And so we have two very different ideas of kingdom. Now, Jesus also, to, to bring out this contrast with Pilate, says, look, your kingdom is carried out by crucifixion and by sword. My kingdom is carried out by truth. And this takes Pilate back so much that he has to ask, what do you mean truth? What is truth? But that's what we see the kingdom of God being built upon. It's not upon our coercing people to live our way of life and demanding that our pagan nation have Christian laws. I mean, those would be nice, but that's not how we advance his kingdom. We advance his kingdom with truth by declaring the gospel and by sharing with neighbors and relations the truth of who Jesus is and the Zoe life he came to give. It's it's the Romans that coerce people into their kingdom, not Jesus He's always open and inviting, not forcing. And so we see that difference. Truth brings light. Truth exposes what Caesar's kingdom would not want exposed by the truth of God's kingdom. Every kingdom has its dark secrets. They've done their murderous deeds to get to where they are. They've oppressed people that they just don't want you to see in the media to make sure everything looks nice. The Pax Romana, everything's peaceful and prosperous. We don't have any problems in this kingdom, but they're totally killing and oppressing people to make that a fact. And Jesus says, truth, my kingdom exposes the darkness of this world. And that is something Caesar and Pilate cannot have, nor the Jews in this instance. So next week we're going to see him crucified.